Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I want to take you back in time to September of 1990. September of 1990. I was about to go to college, and my parents and I had this conversation not too long ago and, and laughed uh, heartily, would be mild, uh, about that moment there together. Um, you know, there I was standing there by my car, and my parents are telling me, you know, make sure you do this. We've raised you this particular way. Please don't get into that. You better call us regularly. Uh, you know, this list of things to do, and also a reminder of who I was and, and how I was supposed to represent that family name, and, uh, and, and I'm just waiting because I can't wait to get in my car and go. It was going to be three and a half hours away from home, and I was just ready, but they were trying to review all of, all of life, all of uh, everything that we'd existed for in that moment was coming to bear, and it was pretty intense for them, and they were, you know, in tears and wondering, where is this going to go? We don't know. I think they told me they prayed for... <laughs> A good while after I left, and uh, which was, you know, I needed that. Um, and uh, I think about that moment when I think about Paul here uh, with the Ephesians, because what he's doing is really creative. He's taking imagery that will stick in order to help them get all that he has said. It's really a neat moment. So it's, today's message is not meant to scare us. And I think sometimes we can fall into that, to think that this is a scary message, but it's actually meant to sober us to reality, to summarize what he has said, and then to strengthen us. Uh, and so to sober us to the true reality that there is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual world, a spiritual dimension, a cosmic perspective from God that is mapped over the human experience. And the question is, are you sobered to that reality? And then he also wants to summarize everything he said. So this is the end of the book. So he wants to summarize everything he said in chapter one, two, three, four, five, and six. And he's doing that by giving us an image that will stick in our minds, taking theological concepts and then putting them into terms of weaponry. And then he finally, he wants to strengthen us. He wants to strengthen the readers to be who they are in Christ. 
And I love the songs that we have already sang. We are already in the zone, worshiping God, knowing who we are, knowing who he's declared us to be, and we're standing. In fact, I forgot to tell you to sit because you were standing. You could have just stood through the whole service here, and that might have been appropriate to actually get the point that Paul's trying to get to us today, that he wants us to stand in this identity that he's given to us in Christ. And so it's the actual answer to be strengthened to his prayer. This is God's response to Paul's prayer in 3.16 when he said that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. And so this would be his, God's anticipated response. And so if you do not know that your own strength and power is not enough, you're in for a hard journey. You're in for a really hard journey, and you're at great risk if you don't realize that your own spiritual strength and tenacity is not enough. You're gonna need some resources to draw from that are beyond that. And so power is actually the issue here in Ephesus as he's writing to these Gentile believers. Power is the issue in their minds. See, they live in the city of Ephesus where the, where the goddess Artemis, the Ephesian, is the protectress of the city. And that's how they saw that. And so he's brought them out of that into Christ and trying to pull them out of these power struggles. And her temple there was one of the seventh wonders of the world. I mean, the, the renown of Artemis is really profound in this area. It's hard for us as Americans to kind of get ourselves into the tentacles of what this belief actually looked like in this Asian port city that, had, that stretched out all over the geographic area. Acts 19, though, gives us a little picture of Paul's time in Ephesus to lay the backdrop of this idea of power, uh, and they behold the power of God. So much so that after Paul has been discipling people for two years, it says this in chapter 19 of Acts, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Amazing miracles were happening through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched him were being brought to sick people and they were healing people. Amazing acts of God. And verse 17 says, fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. In verse 18, many of those who were now believers were coming and bringing their books of magic and art and all those uh, evil sort of practices. They were bringing them for a huge book burning and their repentance manifested from turning from their sin in those forms. And actually it's said that where 50,000 pieces of silver was the worth of all that was burned, this huge uh, magic book burning, it, that's over $6 million today. I mean, that's some serious repentance. We're gonna turn from this stuff and we're gonna trust the Lord. And it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail, that all of Asia was turning to Christ and away from the goddess Artemis. Paul's ministry was so profound and the power of God was so profound that, that the industry of idol making was taking a hit. So much so that there was an outrage led by the silversmith and then there was a huge, uh, in the Ephesian theater there, an outrage in the public gathering, an uproar and Paul had to escape for his life. And they were basically saying our lives, our culture, our protection, our beliefs, are all collapsing. In verse 27, I love this. It says that Artemis may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
See, the battle that's ensuing is one of power that's beyond human reason and will. And I know the tendency in this type of environment that can be intellectual and learning uh, and academic is one in which our reason can undermine the notion that there is a spiritual dimension at play in our lives because we're rationalistic in our tendency. And so my prayer today is that God would actually give you the eyes to see what's going on. Uh, sort of like Elijah in 2 Kings 6 when Elisha and his servant were taking on the Assyrians and they were out in the battle and they were surrounded by the Assyrian army and, a, and his servant was scared to death and said, what are we gonna do? And Elijah prayed that his servant's eyes would be open to the host of God and his servant beheld the host and chariots of fire that were completely over this enemy and the battle belonged to the Lord. And so their idea there, the concept there is to stand in the victory of the Lord, to stand inside his might. That's what Paul is talking about in all of Ephesians is that we are in him. Can you take that in, that we are in him? That's what this armory that he's gonna talk through us about is supposed to communicate to you as to how to get in him. In chapter one, Paul prayed that God would open the eyes of their hearts to understand the massive power that God has put at their disposal through the victorious Christ. And in chapter two, he has given them victory over the prince of the power of the air. In chapter 320, the power that is at work in us has made us new, one unified man, one new humanity. That's what this power of God has done and the dwelling place of God's spirit. See, we are the primary evidence that God's plan to unite all things in Christ is being successfully executed. We are that evidence, the church of God throughout history. And the church serves as a witness that the enemy powers of God have been defeated and their defeat remains secure. And we can stand in his victories. So we don't have to live in, in fear, but in power. And I wonder if you think about areas of your life right now where it's, you've been in Christ a pretty good while and you're wondering, does the power of God have the ability to conquer that habitual secret sin in my life that feels like it is so entrenched? And Paul would want you to know today that his power has set you free and that there are ways practically in which that power is going to manifest in liberating you from those areas. I mean, even preparing this sermon, God has really awakened my own uh, eyes to see some of these places where I hadn't slowed down long enough to really look at the places where I used to feel that way about certain things, and God is setting me free from them. It's incredibly encouraging, and I, I pray that that's what happens today. So there's really only one exhortation here that Paul gives. It's in verse 10. And the rest of the sermon uh, grows right out of that message. In verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. There it is. Boom, done. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's the call. The rest is how one does that. And so this morning, Paul is calling us to be sober-minded, and he wants to summarize these great truths so that he would strengthen and stir our hearts uh, today to action and so he does that by saying the strong uh, in the Lord know the real enemy, the strong in the Lord dress in God's armor, and the strong in the Lord pray like a champ. 
And so let's do that. Let's walk through those today. The strong in the Lord know the real enemy. Put on the, full, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do, not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Christianity is a worldview. These aren't just concepts. This is a worldview. It's what we believe is went wrong with the world and what we believe currently is happening and how we believe that it will be set right one day. And so these aren't just concepts, it's a new reality. So if someone came to you and said, put on your armor, the whole armor, what would you be thinking? Probably two things. Number one, there is a war. Number two, there's a lot of pieces to this armor because you said the word whole. And so that's what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna talk about that. The fact that we are in a spiritual battle that we can't see with our eyes, we can't touch with our hands, we can't smell with our nose or hear with our ears. There is a spiritual battle that is ensuing. It reminds me of uh, it, right at the end of World War II, the U.S. commissioned uh, a service for a ship to be built, the USS United States. And this ship was supposed to be able to transport troops from our shores to across the Atlantic in three and a half days. And so that's basically what this ship's purpose was, was to transport troops in three and a half days across from the Atlantic. As a matter of fact, its speed record was still kept all the way up to 1990, which is pretty amazing. But it's interesting that this ship was later used as a cruise liner, and then it was parked in Atlantic City and turned into a casino. Now, think about the role of the church. Think about the role of the church in the presence or absence of war. If you frame up the role of the church in the absence of a spiritual battle, you'll turn it into the casino or the cruise liner. It's all about me and my comfort. It's all about self. It's all about what I can get out of this. But if you frame up the church in the context of a spiritual battle, then we're talking about something that has been equipped to engage in the war and to win and defeat it. And that is the proper perspective that Paul is trying to give to his hearers in understanding the fact that there is a spiritual battle. You know, half the pastoral point that Paul's after right here is to just to get us to believe that there is a spiritual battle presence because we don't see it. We see it manifest in different pockets, but we don't tend to live with that reality as a present ongoing reality for us. Barna Research says this, and uh, I'm, I minister to college students, and so this particular statistic is, is on my heart. It says from age 18 to 29 years old, there's a 58% drop-off of those in active in church. 58% drop-off in that age group. That means 8 million former churchgoers in their teens will not be by the time they reach their 30th birthday. There is a spiritual battle going on. In the last 25 years, the amount of skeptics under 30 has doubled. Robbie Zacharias put it this way in, in his book, Deliver Us From Evil. One great troubling sign is the story of a student who was asked whether ignorance or apathy is worse. And the student quickly answered, I don't know and I don't care. There's a clear call to uproot the sentinel of our past and reconfigure the future without any points to reference. 
It's really scary to think about. Will you believe today that there's a spiritual battle raging on a cosmic level? I mean, it's the war behind wars. It's the struggle behind the struggle. And Paul specifically goes out of his way to say it's not against flesh and blood. It's not as simple as human opposition to try to, to seek to control evil people. There's something going on beyond that that needs to be engaged. It's the evil behind the evil. In Ephesians 2, the gospel says that we should believe that, that not just that we are evil and responsible for that, but that we've been serving at the will of the prince of the air, the spirit at work and the sons of disobedience. So Paul is actually pointing to, yes, you're sinful. And in a, in a reformed context like that, we hang a lot of trouble on that, and we should. But there is a, another layer back behind that that says we're, there's actually an entity at work with a host of colleagues, and we were serving that entity, this person, the prince of the spirit of the air, this demonic force that is an individual. If we think the Christian life is simply a matter of human effort to be a good person with spiritual values, we've misread the situation. We've, re we've made it reductionistic to the truth of what's really out there. This was staggering to me to read, y'all. Barna said that four out of 10 Christians, that's 40% of Christians, evangelical Christians, I, I don't understand this, strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil, just a symbol. Paul is insistent on his readers identifying the enemy as an individual demonic intelligence. And it's not just simply broken structures in the world and broken systems of injustice. One writer said it this way, Satan and his host exist for the purpose of bringing their evil and destructive influences to bear on the world and humanity at every level. There is a battle going on and the strong stand in the Lord. So we need to know the real enemy. We need to know who our enemy is and who our enemy is not and why they're dangerous. The real enemy is Satan and all of his evil armies. The real enemy is not flesh and blood. If you think that, then you're already being played. I remember when Carly and I were struggling to, to relate well together in our marriage about five, six years in, a lot of pressure, kids that were really young. Uh, we tended to you know, disagree and argue a bunch, and we just kind of were at each other during that season. And we met with a couple, and one of the, the most powerful things that they reminded us of is that we are not each other's enemies, that there is an enemy who seeks to destroy our marriage, and we are not that enemy. And so we need to get on the same side of the table together and align ourselves to praying against him and uniting as one in our marriage. That was game changer, y'all. I can literally point to that season as a transformation of our marriage and our oneness from then to now. And we've been married 19 years. It really is a powerful truth that we need to embrace. He's subtle, he's crafty, he's skillful in his ability to deceive. And his goal is one thing, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That is what he does. That is what he wants to. And he attacks in constant repetition. You need to know this. He attacks in constant repetition as well as in countless variety. And he's unrelenting. Jerome says it this way, uh, a theologian from the first century. He said, just as wise leaders of armies are accustomed to assault, especially those places of a city, which are least protected, so that when they have broken in through those places, the protected areas may be easily captured. 
The devil also seeks to break in and reach the very citadel of our heart and soul through those places which he sees lying open and not shut up firmly. So where in your life, this is the question, where in your life are you leaving the back door open? Where in your life, where in my life am I leaving the back door open, entertaining things that actually are, are, are gonna tear me up and tear me apart? He wants to prey on our weakness. He wants to use our temptations. He wants to use even physical ailments and the things that we struggle with with this physical body breaking down to discourage us and depress us. He uses perverted thinking regularly, perverted thinking and philosophies that put us at the center of our world and distort our relationship with God. Death and destruction and misery are what he's all about, and he won't stop, and he can't be reasoned with, and he is a defeated, wounded, angry enemy, and he is not going out without a fight. That's who he is, and he has intricate, complex schemes and strategies that he's created and employs in the world through all different types of means. See, if you're not rescued in Christ, then you're still serving the prince of the air as the son of disobedience. And so the only way to get out and see it all is to be in Christ, the one who has rescued you. But if you're down in this, captivated by it, then the whole thing is kind of invisible. See, he wants us to allegorize himself in the scripture and not take him as a literal person because that provides him cover to be able to operate. He uses social structures, political structures, economic, judicial, all sorts of brokenness. He even uses death. Listen to this in Hebrews 2.14. It says, through the, though, through the fear of death, they are in lifelong bondage to him who has the power over, the de over death, that is the devil. That's amazing. So he is not alone. He has a plurality of powers at his commands, the rulers, authorities, and powers, the spiritual forces is a comprehensive way to summarize that, and he is on attack. And Paul uses this one word here in Greek, pale, that he never uses anywhere else in the New Testament, and it means from the Isthmian games, this idea of wrestling, hand to hand. And what that means there is that this is going to be a close, personal struggle and battle and interaction. It is not gonna be far off, send scud missiles in, we never get affected by it. This is gonna be very personal to each one of us. The point is this, it's gonna be really personal and he exhorts his workers to, to think this, to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And if we think that we can control his outbreaks without the spiritual resources, we have confused ourselves for something that we're not. Uh, I thought about this, this was kind of scary. Um, Jackson had a bunch of friends over and they were doing a bonfire in the back and y'all, this is like the oldest one in the book. All right, so this is really time for confession for Joe. Um, I got a little can, it was just a little can of gasoline, you know, I'm gonna just kind of shoot it out and, you know, get it going, and I kind of flicked it like that, and then it went, and I was like, that's perfect. And I have no idea why the second thing was what I did. Maybe it needs just a little dialing up a little bit more. <laughs> I've got people out here going, oh no, you didn't. Yeah, I did. And I shot that piece out there, and it was like slow motion. I watched it go up, up, and, and right about right here, when the fire got right here, I thought, this is really happening. <laughs> I am the dumbest human on earth in this moment. 
Jackson's friends are going to hate me. <laughs> All before it got to the can, and then I saw it right at the tip of the can, and I was like, I've gotta let this go. And so I just slowly let it into the fire, and I backed them up, and that thing just said, <laughs> and I was waiting for Paul and Nancy to come over and say, hey, neighbor, we kinda like our house right now, if you could just dial that back, that'd be great. And the guys on the other side of the pond were looking back this way, and I think I could see their eyes from there, like this guy's gonna torch the neighborhood. And uh, it, was, it was really scary to me in that moment because I felt like an idiot for sure, absolutely. And I tried to play it cool, but it didn't work. Everybody's eyes were singed, mine were. Um, and, uh, but that's the idea here. It's, it's really interesting because when we try to think that we can take on this spiritual battle in our own resources and strengths, like, God, I got this. I'm kind of doing good. I'm feeling it right now. This morning's been a great quiet time, great time in prayer. I'm ready to go. And we take one step out there on our own capacity, and that's the kind of stuff that goes on in our lives. Right when we think we have the ability to control this, we lose control. And it's a perception that then reality hits, and we're confronted with it. But there is hope because 2 Corinthians 10, three through four says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have power to destroy strongholds. We've been seated with Christ. And so the strong in the Lord dress in God's armor, and we're gonna run through these. There's so much here that's really good. The first one is take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In the ninth grade, I, I, I went out for football, which was almost as stupid as the fire thing, so I'm just kind of telling you everything. Um, I went out for football in ninth grade. The reason why that was stupid is because at that point in my life, I was five foot three and 127 pounds, and I think my shoulder pads weighed more than I did, plus the helmet. And so I'm dressed out. We have a hilarious picture of me on my front porch with this on, and I, they gave me some random number that's like, yeah, that guy's dead. Uh, it's like 37 or something. Nobody has that number. And, uh, and so they, they take me out there, and we're going through all the different pieces of the padding that I gotta put on in this thing, and my buddies are over there, and we're laughing, and, and I'm like, I got a feeling this isn't gonna be funny in about an hour after we stretch. And, and all these different pieces of padding was like, it was this reminder of all the different ways that I was about to be punished with every piece of padding that I put on. And then I go out there onto the field, and they put me on the other side holding a dummy on the other side of a guy who got a full ride to the University of Georgia, and he was a senior, and his name was Bam Bam. <laughs> and they said, hold this pad. And I'm standing behind this thing, and I look over at my friend, and I'm like, what are we gonna do? And this guy hits me, and I feel like, I think I woke up 10 yards behind me looking through my ear hole, and my mask is over here, and I was like, man, this is not for me. I finished out the week and then said, I'm good, I'm good. I tried football, that was it, I was done. What, what happens here in this part of the story for Paul and what he's trying to teach is that he wants to go through all the pieces of the armor. One of the practices in, ancient, uh, in the ancient Grecian times was for a, a general to go over all the pieces of the armor to give his soldiers confidence in what they are about to experience in battle. And that's basically what Paul is doing here. He's gonna walk through these different pieces to give them their confidence to know that they are heavily armored in God's armor. 
And that is key for us to notice, the armor of God. It's not the armor of man, it's the armor of God. And God wore it in Isaiah 59. And it says this, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. They're putting on daddy's armor. And when the enemy sees him coming, the enemy cowers in fear because they see the armor of God. They see God coming and we're standing in him. That's what's so important to understand about all of Paul's theology in Ephesians is that we stand in him. We look like him, we fight like him, and we win like him. And in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 59, you have Yahweh standing in the armor of God, and in the New Testament, you have the church standing in the armor of God. And Paul's got this picture of a Roman Praetorian in mind here when he's thinking about these guys were faithful, reliable, and after they did all of their responsibilities, that they would go take their post and make their stand after all the preparations. And so preparation is sort of the thing in view here and standing in the armor of God. So what do they do? They fasten the belt of truth, this thick, uh, this thick leather belt fastened around the waist, securing the midsection uh, that had a leather apron that came down to cover the loins but was also movable for lots of action. See, there's this picture of activity going on in the belt of truth. And that God desires truth in the inner parts of our hearts, where we apply the gospel. This is the strength of our inner belief, and this is what has to go on first, is that we understand our identity in Christ. And the question before you is, do you know who you are in Christ? That's what this whole message series has been about in Ephesians, is understanding who you are and your identity in Christ. Where you can face sin and darkness and say, that's not who I am anymore. And you can make a stand, not just against the things that are out there, but the things that are troubling you, the things that seem to have a stronghold in you. You can say, I don't have to buy the lies. I'm redeemed. That's not who I am anymore. And then secondly, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness uh, had both, it was a three-piece garment. It was a chest plate that had buckles in the back. And then it also, uh, well, it had the midriff guard and then the chest and then the shoulders, three pieces. And the breastplate of righteousness for sure is for protection against blows and arrows. But this breastplate of righteousness that guards against assault is not only the declared righteousness with which we've been justified, but it's also the functional righteousness in our lives that we are actually living out this righteous life that God has called us to, this faith and obedience that is working itself out where we are like God in Isaiah 59. We are just and fair and equitable and upright in our dealings with others and with ourselves, living in integrity. And then he says, as for shoes for feet, you put on the, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's these, the idea here is these combat boots that were issued, issued to the Roman guards, uh, the Roman legionnaires, they were leather with open sections around the side for movement, uh, but they covered their feet and ankles with multi-layered leather soles on them with studs on the bottom for action. It's like, I got my Air Jerusalems on. When a messenger comes within earshot of the city, this is what's amazing about this, is in battle when the messenger comes within earshot of the city, he starts yelling peace. And by the time he arrives to the city, the people are already celebrating. What an amazing picture of the feet of readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
and those are our shoes. See, peace is the source that the soldiers are ready to make their stand within, carrying the message to the world that our God reigns. That's a message of peace. Because of the cross, we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. And because of that settled reality, we can go and engage knowing that we have that peace as the foundation for our engagement. It's the only secure footing and that footing gives rise to a spirit of volunteerism that is profound. And then he, he goes on to say, and in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the shield of faith, the soldier's therios, or shield, was the most prominent part of his equipment in size. This is what you would see. It was about two, two feet wide and about four feet tall, so it was really big. It wasn't a little wooden frisbee. All right, so don't get that out of your mind. It was a big shield, and it had curved edges around it. And it was leather and canvas uh, wrapped in a metal around it. And, uh, and this shield, you could literally get inside the thing, and it would protect you almost in every direction, just the shield itself. And these flaming arrows were a part of a tactic. I th this is really unique. The flaming arrows were lit on fire to accomplish an intimidation purpose. So they would light the arrows in fire and then they would hit the, hit the shield with them and the idea was this flaming arrow would set this shield on fire causing the soldier to throw it down and then open themselves up for an attack. It was completely an intimidation tactic. And think about that. That's how the enemy, that's how crafty he is. He's gonna try to hit you with flaming arrows of doubt and discouragement and unbelief that is in you, teasing out the things that you're not really sure about, the things that, the messages that are outside of you from the things that you hear about the world that, that says it's really all about you. You can be your own God. You should really just do what feels good to you and right to you instead of submitting yourself to the scriptures. Keep yourself over the word, not under the word. It's gonna change your life. You're gonna lose everything. Just kind of pick and choose what part of it that you really wanna obey. Those are flaming arrows, but the crafty soldiers, what they would do is they would dip their shield in water and have that thing soaking wet so that when those flaming arrows hit it, it would extinguish them. Think about how Jesus describes himself as the living water who soaks our souls behind the shield of faith to extinguish all those arrows that are both internal and external and here's the other piece. They're not to do it alone. The Romans were amazing at forming a thing called a phalanx where they would all get together and interlock their shields and it literally looks like an armored car from front to top to back to sides, completely protected. Think about the idea of your personal faith in the context of a community of faith to extinguish the attacks of the arrows and the enemy that he wants to shoot at you. That's to say, my, my friend used to say it this way, if you ain't Bruce Lee, don't enter the dragon. That means this isn't a solo game here. This is about a community. This is about all of us together needing one another, drawing to one another, all behind our shields of faith. Because sometimes mine is weak and it's getting a little dry. And if, I, and if an arrow hits me, I might burn up and give in to the intimidation tactic and open myself up, but yours is soaking wet because you've been with the Lord, and you're there for me to help me make it through my unbelief in those places. 
I want you to see that. That's really, really powerful because this is a community project to defeat the enemy. No one does it by themselves. Faith is fundamental to Paul's letter in Ephesians. It's how they're saved. It's how they have access to God. It's how Christ dwells in their hearts. It's how they have unity as one body. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. And and the word is salvation there. That's not about being saved. It's about victory because this is the armor of God and God doesn't need to be saved. So what salvation has in view there is victory. So take the helmet of victory. That's perspective and appropriate that victory in your life. The question is, is your thought world guarded by the knowledge of your own victory in Christ? And then take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only weapon of attack in this whole list. And Revelation 19, 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Here, the same word is used to fight off the evil foes of God. The word here in the sword, word is makaira, and that's the 12-inch knife sword, not the big old long daddy that looks like a Claiborne. This is the short 12-inch makaira sword. Again, he's going back to this idea that this is gonna be a close-range battle. That's why this thing is specifically short, is to get in there tight. That's what's gonna happen in this attack. It's gonna be incredibly personal and proximity. And he also uses the word, normally Paul uses the word logos to talk about the word, and here he uses the word rhema, which actually means the same thing as logos, but it has a, it has a spoken bent to it. So the spoken word is the sword, the spoken word over that situation. What does that mean? It means that God's word conquers all that was lost to sin, and we need to memorize it, we need to meditate on it, We need to appropriate it in our lives. We need to hear it. We need to study it. We need to read it. We need to be saturated with this word of God in order to combat against the unbelief that comes our way and the personal attacks of the enemy. I can't tell you how many times uh, I have had to quote a verse to myself specifically against what feels like a very personal attack to me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that one passage in Psalm 119, 9 and 11 has has helped me in so many moments of struggle. I hope that we continue to do that as a community. And then finally, the strong in the Lord pray like a champ. This is the context of the spiritual battle and imagery that reaches the climax in the context of prayer. So basically, if you wanna stand strong in the battle, you pray because strength and prayer go hand in hand. If you're not praying, then you're exposing yourself to weakness and vulnerability and openness to attack. But if we're praying, we stay alert and we're able to see the the enemy approaching. So many pictures in the Old Testament of God's people compromising in the area of prayer and prayerlessness and then being overtaken by their enemies and then eaten up with idolatry that brings about the curses of the covenant. And Paul is just saying how you appropriate all this stuff, how you put it on, is in the context of prayer. So pray like a champ, pray like one who stands in victory, who expects victory. How do we do that? And he points to these four things, at all times, he uses the word all four different times here, at all times, underscoring the significance and impact and the game changer that prayer is. And the dependence on God in prayer is essential to the spiritual warrior. 
And then he says, pray in the spirit. What does that mean? In the spirit means in connection with and in concert with the spirit. So what are the prayers that the spirit of God is putting on you to pray for? I've prayed for people before and then call me and say later, I was you know, struggling with this, this, and this. And it really was amazing to think that at that very moment was when God told me to pray for them. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. So I can't not say it that way. Uh, it's amazing. Pray in the spirit. Um, praying in concert with the spirit. Doing it together as a church. Praying the prayers that he's guiding us to pray. It's highly relational. And then thirdly, he says, with all perseverance. Praying in faith and believing and expecting. James confronts this. He says, with no doubting, the, that person is like a wave tossed about by the wind. He's double-minded and unstable in his life. And he shouldn't expect to receive anything, the person that prays like that, in unbelief. We walk away too soon in prayer, y'all, to see the impact of what God is doing through our prayer. Intercessory prayer is a ministry and a service to one another. I had multiple people tell me that they're praying for me today in this service. You know what that means? We participate in each other's spiritual gifts through prayer with one another, that we're all vested together in this function. We have people praying for different you know, missionaries and and different things in our community groups and sufferings and things that we're going in and going through. And we're praying that our gifts be used in the world. We participate in and with one another through prayer. And then he says, fourthly, to pray for the advance of the gospel. And Paul's role as, as an ambassador in chains, he is praying for his personal use of the sword of the spirit because he's in prison in Rome and he's about to go before the magistrate. The idea that prayer and mission are highly connected is really powerful. We pray because we believe that God saves people. That's why we pray. We don't believe in the power of a meeting or the power of a certain set of words. We believe in God's power, and so that's why we pray for people to be saved. He uses specific prayers to rescue people from the bondage of their sin and slavery. And then Paul says, this is amazing, he doesn't ask for self-pity, and he doesn't ask for prayer for release. What he asks for prayer for is for boldness and clarity. And those are the two things that we need to be praying for ourselves and praying for our missionaries is boldness and clarity, that they would be bold because it's easy to dial it back when you see the face of disapproval on the person who's listening to you. <laughs> talk about this Christian thing. Talk about this Jesus, this only one way. We need boldness for that. We need courage. But then we also need clarity. And he's praying that, that they would ask for clarity for his sake, that he would make clear the truths of the mysteries of the gospel. And that mystery revealed is that God is uniting all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. Namely, uh, that Jews and Gentiles together would be one man, one humanity. That is the mystery revealed. So he's praying that they would pray that he would make the gospel clear that his work would be done. And then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 17 that God answered those prayers because he said, uh, he said the Lord stood at, my stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And the Lord delivered me from the lion's mouth. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. There's a lot to hear in this text, but we pray this morning that we would stand firm and stand strong in the battle, that we would put on the full armor of God, that we would be a people 
who don't seek to undermine the spiritual reality that there is a battle, there is an enemy who has tons of colleagues and hosts at his disposal, that there is a spiritual engagement and struggle happening behind the things that we see that trouble us. We are able to perceive evil people in the world doing evil things, God, but we struggle to see the evil that's actually motivating and driving them. And we struggle to act right there, to actually pray right there, to gather together as a church in prayer meetings, in our community groups, to actually pray against that evil. I pray that you would invigorate our commitment to intercession here today. God, I pray that each one of us would take personal responsibility to put on the whole armor of God, that we would think about getting up and getting ready for our day in the morning and putting on the panoply of weaponry that you've given us to be able to guard ourselves. And the thing that keeps us from doing that is a lack of humility. We, we tend to have an inflated view of ourselves and an, under, uh, an underestimated view of you. God, save us from that. Help us to not live that way. Help us to put on the full armor of God so that we might, in our evil moment, uh, stand firm and stand strong. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.